The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. That song's great because it talks about being able to say, I know I'm going to meet the Lord. And if you read Romans, you're just going to be pounded this last week, this week, next week, and two more weeks on, on your own sinfulness. So how can you meet the Lord in your own sin and say, it is well with my soul? I've got good news. I can tell you how. And that's what Paul is doing is telling us how it is well with our soul, though we are sinners and we know we're going to meet God and it's right to punish sin. Let's kind of review the logic of Romans. Here's how he's been working through the text. It's a very logical book, a lot of four, four conjunctions. This is what I mean for reason, 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 reason. So in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel. Why is he eager to preach the gospel? He says, because it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the, the creating, the, all the power we saw in God, the creator, who is, who is the all-powerful being, all that eternal power, he has placed the power for salvation in that gospel. So that's why Paul is eager to preach it. Also because the gospel, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. And he reveals in the gospel that that righteousness is received by faith. That's the key phrase. Righteousness is received, not achieved. Say that with me. Righteousness is received, not achieved. That's the story of Romans. That's the story of the Bible. Righteousness is received, not achieved. And then last week, he began to just whack the legs out from everybody. He's going to do that. Last week, this week, next week, and the following week, Paul is going to remove all excuses. No one is going to be able to stand in judgment and say, I didn't know. And no one's going to be able to stand in judgment and say, well, I was good enough. Paul is removing all those excuses And we saw last week in verses 18 through 32, we enjoyed it, if we're honest. Because last week, he was talking about them out there, right? Remember, he was saying, they, they, they. Those wicked, ungodly sinners who practice homosexuality, who practice evil, who are given over to ungodliness, who reject God. They're not religious. They're very far away from God. They're immoral. They celebrate sin. They're greedy. They're God-haters. And they are without excuse. And then Paul says, you are without excuse. Look what he says in our text today. 2-1, he went from last week saying, they are without excuse, to one, he says, therefore, you are without excuse. That's a major shift from they to you. And that you, I'm going to use you a lot today, but I want you to know that I am with you in the you. Last week, Ham really liked the way I said it was, we are they Today, I'm telling you, I am you, all right? We are they. We are all in the same boat. They are without excuse, and so are you. So who is he talking about? Who is the you? 
I'm going to phrase it this way in our contextual, to contextualize in modern day terms. Last week he was speaking to the atheists, let's say. The ungodly, celebrating sin, rejecting God outwardly and happy to be just in outright rebellion against God or is as if there was a God. Today, when he turns to you, I'm going to say he's talking to the, the churchgoers, the moralist. If last week was the atheist, then today is the moralist and next week is the legalist. If he was talking to those out there who rejected God, today he's talking to those of you who go to church and try to live a good life and keep your nose clean and do religion. And next week he's going to talk to the Bible teachers, to the elders, to the pastor, to those who know the word, study the word, and try really hard to obey the word. And he's saying to the atheist, to the moralist, to the legalist, the same thing. There is no excuse for any of you. He's putting us all on level ground. In three, chapter 3, 20, and all around there, he's going to say, For there is no one righteous, not even one. We will see. So this is a hard section of Scripture. This is just taking it on the head week in and week out. But it's important for us to do this. There's a version of Christianity that skips these passages. And that's not Christianity. Because if you don't know the bad news, then you can't know the good news. Right? And so we're spending a section here looking at the bad news, but each week we're not going to forget Romans 1, 16 and 17. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed by faith. You are made right with God by faith. He's hitting us so hard because he's saying, if you're trying to stand on one leg, if if I took one leg out and there's still a leg of self-righteousness, or of, of excuse making, he's saying, I, I, I got to take it away because I want you to know the wonderful, glorious, good news. You can be made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where he's going today to the moralist. What does he say? What is he going to say to you as he talks to you and says, you have no excuse? In verse 1, he describes you as every one of you who passes judgment. In the second part of verse 1, he describes you as you who judge practice the same thing. In verse 3, he says, do you suppose you will escape the judgment of God? In verse 4, do you not? He says, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Verse 5, because of knowing... Uh, Because, excuse me, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. So he's telling us, stop looking at them. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. And understand these things about yourself. This is a huge problem in churches today. In our culture that is filled with with wonderful churches, there's something going on that is happening that I have discovered, and here's what it is, that Bible-believing, gospel-believing pastors are preaching 
biblical messages and what they're saying. And I know them. They believe Jesus saves and only Jesus saves. Your good deeds don't save. But what happens is if we as preachers preach this message week in and week out, obey, obey, be good, do right, do right, don't do wrong. And we don't preach it in the ocean of grace. Salvation is by faith alone. Then what we end up having is a bunch of judgmental, moralistic, self-righteous people going, okay, so the standard is do this. Okay, as long as I do this, I'm better than that person. And I'm okay. And that's, just, that's not God's design. That's not God's will. It's not what anyone's trying to do. But we have to understand it is all in the context of salvation and righteousness is only by grace. And then we do these things. I mean, who's going to bring a guest into a church? That, that, who's going to bring their homosexual friend into a church if they think everyone's going to be pointing their finger at them in condemnation. Nobody will. As long as we think we're better than them and they're condemned and I'm righteous, then we are making a mockery of God's church. God's church is built on the fact that I am them. When I see them, when I see the sin, when I see the wickedness, what I should see is myself. Saved, but saved by the grace of God. And want to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today the message is to the moralist. What is the moralist? It's not someone who says sin is sin. That's the right thing to do. Sin should be called sin. And sinners should be called to repentance. You can tell we don't apologize for that. But the moralist makes the mistake of condemning the sinner in an attempt to acquit their self. Condemning the sinner and pointing to their sin in an effort to exalt their own righteousness so they feel that makes them right with God. And you know what Paul says to that? You know what Paul says to you when you do that? Chapter 2, verse 1, For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. When you condemn them, you condemn yourself. Now, how so? How do we condemn ourselves when we condemn them? That's what he's going to explain to us in verses 2 through 11. He's going to explain how we condemn ourselves when we condemn them. I'm going to break it into two categories. First of all, he's going to talk about our judgment. And then he's going to talk about God's judgment. So first, our judgment. The problem, the reason we condemn ourselves when we condemn others is because our judgment, we are wicked judges. We are corrupt judges. Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, In that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He says, You're the judge that's been dealing drugs with the dealers and then throwing them in jail. You're the judge that's been going to pay for prostitutes, and then when they come before your court, you sentence them to prison. 
You're the judge that has been taking bribes and then putting those in, in prison for doing the same thing you do. He says, that's why when you condemn them, you condemn yourself. The old thing is when you point your finger at someone, there's three more coming back at you, right? You do exactly what you're condemning them for doing. We are corrupt judges. Paul says this condemns us because when we condemn them, we're condemning ourselves because we, see, we are ignorant to our own sin. We're blind to our own sin. We are partial judges. He's going to say God is not partial. God is impartial. We are partial. And who are we partial toward? Who are we biased towards? We're biased towards ourselves. While we can clearly see their sin, we don't see our own sin. We're not practicing that same sin. I'm not doing that. How can you say, I do the same thing? We're going to explain that in just a minute. But when you condemn them, you condemn yourself because you don't see that you are committing the very same sin they are committing. So we're corrupt in our judgment. We're also corrupt as judges. In verse 2, we, say, we see, he says, And we know that the judgment of God, of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We, when we judge them, we're condemning ourselves because we're removing all excuse. We cannot say, I didn't know that that sin deserved judgment. Just like those who are out there, God removed all excuses by revealing himself in creation. We are removing all excuses when we say they are guilty. We cannot say, I didn't know sin deserved to be punished. You've been condemning sin your entire life. Francis Schaeffer says it's like having an invisible tape recorder hanging around your neck. Nowadays, it'd be an invisible MP3 player, a recorder under your neck. And everywhere you go, it's recording what you say. And on Judgment Day, all they got to do is push play. God doesn't have to say a word. And you'll be judged by your own words. Guilty. They deserve what they get. They're sinful, wicked people. And that's going to be the standard that we're measured by. By our condemnation of others, we reveal that we are without excuse. We know sin deserves to be punished. The problem is we just think that we're not sinful. So as corrupt judges, we don't see our own sin. We remove excuse because we know that sin deserves to be judged. And then verse 3, we reveal that we just... Don't use the right standard of judgment for ourselves. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Our judgment is corrupt. We think that we will get off the hook. Why? Because we're measuring ourselves against them. And I don't think any of us chooses the most righteous person that we can find to measure ourselves against. We say, well, at least I'm not doing that. And so we measure ourselves against a corrupt standard. We think we're going to get off the hook because we measure ourselves to someone who's worse than us. And as long as we're better than them, we're going to be okay. That's how corrupt we are. But God measures all of us against one standard And that's his perfect, holy righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ and in his word. Perfection. 
And so we're corrupt judges. We don't see our own sin. We reveal that we know that guilt, sin needs to be punished, but we think that we're not guilty because we judge on a false standard. As long as it benefits us, we skew the scales of justice to benefit ourselves. In verse 4, we see we also misjudge in our corrupt judgment. We misjudge the kindness of God. Look at verse 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that this kindness of God leads you to repentance? When you look at your life and you see blessing and peace and health and happiness and things are going great, what do you think? I must be doing good. I must be doing good. See, they get what they deserve, and I'm getting what I deserve. And Paul says, you're so corrupt. What you deserve is to be obliterated the moment you think a bad thought. But the kindness and the patience and the grace and the mercy of God is that you might repent. Just like they out there have no excuse because they see the goodness of God in creation, the only proper response of all of humanity is to fall on their knees in a life of gratitude to the creator. Just like that, every breath that you take, every good thing that you enjoy in life, every day apart from the wrath of God should lead us to fall on our face in gratitude, in repentance to the great mercy of God. Instead, we spin it. Look what I've done. Look what I've earned. We are corrupt judges. In verse 5, Paul brings out the irony of this moralism. It's ironic, he says in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. That's the sin that we all commit. Our stubbornness, our unrepentant heart, we refuse to submit We refuse to worship. We refuse to humbly give our lives to the Creator. And because of that, every day that we go on condemning them and acquitting ourselves, every day that you do that, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When we think we are storing up blessings and righteousness to our account because of our goodness and being better than them, he says, what you're doing is actually the opposite. You are storing up wrath for yourself. It's a pile of wrath. The scripture makes it clear. It's not that he has passed over that sin and ignored it and swept it under the carpet. If it's under a carpet, it's this mountain that's growing and it's growing. It's not been dealt with. And he's kind and he's patient and he's long-suffering. And this mountain of sin is piling up a mountain of wrath against us. And at that time, our only response should say, 
what can save me from the wrath of God? But instead we're saying, that's righteousness I'm building for myself. He speaks about this day in the future tense of this this day of the wrath that is coming, this storing up of wrath that is coming. That is the term, that, that is the concept that Paul used when he talks about salvation. He doesn't talk about salvation much in, in past terms. That's, that's right. When you trust Christ, and we'll get into these details, you are saved. But what he likes to really talk about it is that you will be saved on that day, that day of wrath, that day of judgment, that day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. On that day, salvation is those who are saved from that stored up wrath. And the irony is, as we look at others out there and condemn them and think we're better than them and therefore we're right with God, all we're doing is storing up a mountain of wrath for ourselves. Paul says that day will be a revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That highlights the unrighteous judgment that we have as corrupt Judges. So that brings us to the second half of his explanation as he starts talking about God's judgment. Our judgment is corrupt. Our judgment is partial toward ourselves. Our judgment doesn't see our own sin. Our judgment uses a bad, faulty standard of measure that's biased towards our innocence. We are corrupt judges. God is a righteous judge. God, in verse 11, is not a partial judge. Listen to what he says in 6 through 11. On that day of judgment, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Whoa, wait a minute, what? Well, I I thought right there he'd say on that day, God would render according to his faith. So we're going to have to understand what does he mean on the day of judgment, God will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. It is the same for every single one of us. So what does Paul mean when he talks about that judgment day and he says, on that day, God will render to each person according to his deeds or according to his works. Wouldn't you expect him there to say that God renders to each person on that day according to his faith in Jesus? What I'm going to show you is that's what he's saying. Let's look at where I get that. I'm going to show you. I'm not just making this stuff up. I want you to turn to Psalm 62, 1 through 12. Psalm 62, 1 through 12. Paul is quoting Psalm 62. And we're going to read Psalm 62, 1 through 12. And I want you to decide for yourself. What does Paul mean when he says, God will render to each person according to his deeds? What does he mean by deeds? It's going to be on your screen. Psalm 62, 1 through 12. My soul waits in silence for God only. 
From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from a high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. And that's Paul's quote. You will render to each person according to his deeds. What does Paul mean when he quotes this text? Does he mean God will bless those who've worked really hard to save themselves? Or does he mean God will honor and save those whose work is described as the work of trusting in God for his salvation? Clearly, He's not teaching works-based righteousness. He's teaching the exact opposite. In support of this definition, we see that Paul in 1.16 said, Righteousness is by faith, from faith to faith. Here he says, those who persevere in doing good. That's the one who rests in the gospel and each day sees the gospel. And that gospel that saved them then produces within them faith-propelled righteousness, faith-propelled deeds. Every day, turning to the gospel, saved by grace through faith. And that gives me faith to live the righteous life and to do good deeds each day. And that is perseverance of good deeds by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so on that day, God will render to each person according to whether they are doing deeds of receiving righteousness by faith or if they are doing deeds of achieving righteousness. The one who does deeds to receiving righteousness, the one, excuse me, the one who does deeds to achieve righteousness has a stubborn unrepentant heart and is refusing to receive righteousness by grace. Even doing good deeds is earning the wrath of God if doing those good deeds 
are trying to earn righteousness or achieve righteousness. When God says, quit trying to achieve righteousness, let me give it to you. Start receiving righteousness. Paul continues to drill down and says this is a heart matter. In verses 7 and 8, he differentiates between the deeds. He says that some deeds were done by those seeking the glory and honor of God, verse 7. And then in verse 8, but then other deeds that were done from a heart that was seeking selfish ambition. The deeds aren't measured by their relative goodness. The deeds are measured by the heart. In verse 8, we see that God puts deeds into two categories. Deeds are either done to obey the truth that you can't make yourself righteous, or they're done to obey unrighteousness. No matter how good those deeds are, it's a rejection of the truth. It's a hand in the face of God. It's saying, I got this. I will make myself righteous. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. I got this. It's exactly what every sinner has done on the face of the planet. I got this. And God says, you're a corrupt judge. You don't have this. In verse 5 of chapter 1, 1, 5, Paul calls this the obedience of faith. In one seventeen, he said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is continually revealed from faith to faith. And now in two seven, he says, God will judge favorably those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. When we put all this together, we can see Paul is saying God will judge each person as to whether or not, the, whether or not their lives were fueled by the gospel of grace producing the obedience of faith each day or whether their lives were fueled by their desire to exalt themselves and their own righteousness. So God is not a partial judge. His judgment is perfect. Verse 6, he says he will judge each person. Verse 9, he says he will judge every soul. Verse 10, he says he will judge everyone. And it will be according to the standard of measure that is perfect. It is his own perfect righteousness. And every one of us will be without excuse if we stand there and say, I'm better than them. To those who have received the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ as a gift and were then subsequently propelled by the gospel to a life of obedience, they will receive, verse 7 says, eternal life. Verse 10 says they will receive glory and honor and peace. But to those who suppress the truth of God with their morality, with their religion, and refuse to receive his gift of righteousness and instead seek to achieve righteousness by comparing themselves to others and then therefore do good deeds to earn righteousness, they can only expect, verse 8 says, wrath and indignation. Verse 9 says, tribulation and distress. Why? Because even their good deeds are done 
in obedience to unrighteousness, to suppression of the truth that righteousness is received as a gift and only as a gift. My prayer is that this church will be the most gracious, loving, accepting place in our community. I don't care how wicked a person is. When you encounter them, you and I should see ourselves and see their need for the grace of God and should love and look forward to bringing them into this place and knowing that all these people are going to embrace them with love and grace that's found in Jesus Christ. We're measuring ourselves against the same standard they are. And that's perfection. And Jesus says, if you even think an angry thought, you're on the same ground as the murderer. You even lusted once in your heart. You're on the same grounds with God in terms of righteousness. You're on the same grounds as the adulterer. You even think one evil thought. You are on the same grounds of righteousness as the one who says, I hate God. And you need the same thing they need. And that's grace. And that's righteousness. And that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's give him grace. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that this morning nobody sits through this clear teaching of Paul and thinks that coming to church and being good and keeping their nose clean makes them right with God. But may Paul's message be clear. We're all cheaters. We're all haters. We're all distorters. We all spin the truth. We're corrupt judges. We can't judge ourselves innocent. But you love us anyway. Oh, the grace of God. Lord, in our humbled state of realizing our sinfulness, may the light of the glory of God pierce the darkness. May we now hear how beautiful are the feet who bring good news that we and they can be declared righteous. We can be given the status of the righteousness of God. That in Christ there is no condemnation. You call us saints, priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, your glory. Oh, Lord, that's, that's beautiful. May we swim in the ocean of grace from the depths of despair. 
Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.